Before we begin, let's go ahead and start off with a word of prayer and uh, go to the Lord and ask for his help this morning because Lord knows that I need his help. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, thank you so much for waking us up. Lord, surely if it was um, in your justice, you would have taken us in our sleep. But Lord, you have given us breath in our lungs. Lord, you have given us a song in our hearts. And you have given us another opportunity to sing praises to you this morning and to lift up high your holy name. Lord, I desperately need your help this morning. Lord, help me to be a Bible teacher this morning that um, clearly shows not only your sovereignty, but, all, but also the many means of grace that you give us to help us with our assurance of grace of salvation. Lord, I pray that at the conclusion that people will remember less of me in this teaching and they'll remember more of you and your love and your grace and your mercy that you have bestowed upon them. We thank you so much for this opportunity to look in your word, to look through the 1689, this, uh, this confession that we hold so dear. And uh, I pray all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. All right. So this morning, instead of having four readers read it in a row, um, I like to change things up a little bit. I'm sort of a nonconformist, so I, uh, I just like changing things up. So uh, we are going to read each paragraph as we go along with my handout. So obviously, this is a 1689. We are going through it. In Sunday school, if you're listening to the recording, this is chapter 18 of Assurance of Grace and Salvation. Could I have one volunteer reader come up and uh, speak into this microphone here, the very first paragraph of this chapter? Go for it. Yeah, right there, bud. Microphone is right there. You're good. It's going to be the handout. Did you get one of those handouts? Okay. Somebody with the handout, could you read chapter one? I'm sorry, paragraph one of chapter 18. Thank you, Jason. Come on down. Temporary believers and the unregenerate people may deceive themselves in vain with false hopes and fleshly presumptions that they have God's favor in salvation, but their hope will perish. Let those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him sincerely, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may be certainly assured in this life that they are in a state of grace. They may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and this hope will never make them ashamed. Thank you, sir. I'll tell you one thing I did not have assurance about this morning was that I was going to wake up on time. With, uh, and, you know, with, with technology and uh, these awesome cellular devices that just change the time for you, I still woke up about five times throughout the night constantly checking my phone because I had a fear that I wasn't going to show up to teach Sunday school this morning. So, uh, I did not have assurance with that, and it's my hope, guys, by the conclusion of this Sunday school that you will understand where our assurance comes from, 
And that if it's something that you lack, that you'll go to God in prayer and you will earnestly seek his face and you will earnestly ask him to increase your assurance of salvation. So we have some blanks, obviously, to fill out here. And the reason I'm up here, by the way, guys, is so, and and Pastor Phil, I think last week was up here, so these guys in the back can have a, a sound check before Pastor Joel gets up here. So if there's any kinks, we want to work those things out before Pastor Joel gets up here and preaches. So what is assurance? I have a good definition for us there. Assurance of salvation is a God-given confidence. Assurance of salvation is a God-given confidence for every true believer in Christ of their present approval and future acceptance by their father. So initially, in paragraph one, there really doesn't give a good definition of assurance, but I want to make sure that we qualify that word so we all understand what it means before we dive into paragraph one. So if you look in paragraph one with me there, there's a warning, right? If there's any kind of theme we can associate with paragraph one, there is a warning that comes along with assurance. So true believers may have assurance, however, unregenerate men may deceive themselves with false hopes. Deceive is your blank there. Unregenerate men may deceive themselves with false hopes. We grew up If you're a local native Texan or anywhere in the South, you know that this has been known as the Bible Belt. If you ask anyone who's anyone in Texas or uh, thereabouts, maybe with with, with the exception of Austin, Waco is a little bit weird too, but you ask most people, are you a Christian? Do you know the Lord? Well, absolutely. And what does it boil down to? Well, it boils down to a couple of things generally, where they live, maybe because they were raised in the church at one time, Um, maybe because, and we're going to dive into this a little bit later, maybe because they recited a prayer, maybe they raised their hand, maybe someone gave them a Bible and they wrote their name in it, and they wrote down the date as well. Um, Maybe they feel that they they are a Christian because of what they do, more so than anything else. So unregenerate men may deceive themselves. So we're going to look at a couple of scriptures Luke 18 is a very known parable. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Can I have someone come up to this microphone and read for us Luke 18, 9 through 14, as well as Galatians 6, 3. And you can just one stand behind the other one and wait. And as I usually say, I teach junior high and high school students. And I'm not afraid of awkward silences or pauses. Luke Luke 18, 9 through 14. 14. It is a long one. Thank you, Mike. (laughs) He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thus God... I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Very good. So as Audrey st steps up, thank you, Mike. We see two men. Jesus is telling this parable. One man has a false assurance. He's pretty confident that he knows the Lord. He has a relationship with the Lord, but everything is on what he has done. The other gentleman, however, begs the Lord for forgiveness. He has a repentant faith. And one of them, the second one, the latter, is the one who goes home justified, not the one in the beginning that looked to himself who had the false assurance. Go ahead, Audrey. Galatians 6, 3, right? Yes, ma'am. Okay, I just want to make sure. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Very good. So we have this warning by Paul in Galatians 6. If anyone thinks he is something, whenever he is nothing, he deceives himself. So people, it's logically possible to think that you're something whenever you are actually nothing. And that could go along with a lot of different examples here, but it definitely most assuredly goes with this one. Men, unregenerate men, deceive themselves with false hopes. So there is a quick and easy assurance that can deceive, and that's based off of a quote that I'm pulling from John MacArthur. He goes, many professed Christians, and even many true Christians, hold to a false doctrine of assurance. Often it's because the person who witnessed to them told them all that they had to do was make a profession of faith and walk an aisle and raise a hand and say a prayer and never doubt what the Lord had done in their lives. Perhaps they have been taught to never doubt their salvation, or to ever doubt their salvation is to doubt God's word and integrity. Unfortunately, many evangelists, pastors, and personal workers attempt to certify a person's salvation apart from the convicting work of the Holy Spirit and the evidence of fruit with continuance and obedience to the word. That's from John 8, 31. Thus, quick and easy, I have that for you there, assurance can deceive. Going down to, to letter C, assurance and grace of salvation is not an assurance that God's promises are true. Yes, that is important. It's assurance that God's promises are ours. It's not the assent, the mental assent, that God's promises are true. It's the assurance that God's promises are ours. It is knowing that oneself is saved and will be saved. So as we know, 1 John and John's other epistles, they aren't for everybody. Um, they are letters to those who are saints. No person, young or old, is excluded from the text in 1 John. And it's a really short one, so I'll go ahead and give that for you here. 1 John 5.13, some of you may already have that blank filled in because it's a good one. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So the things that John wrote, then for his audience, and most assuredly for us now, is so that we will know beyond a doubt that we know the Lord. 
and eternal life is our reward. I'll leave with you a, a Spurgeon quote. I was speaking a little bit ago with Molly of just about Charles Spurgeon, and I include one there this morning. A large number of Christ people who may be perfectly sound in the doctrinal view of the nature of eternal life do not know that they possess it at the present moment. Speaking about this text in John, 1 John, John would not have our assurance vary with the thermometer or turn with the weather vane. He says, these things I have written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. He would have us certain that we are partakers of new life. And so know it as to reap the golden fruit of such knowledge and be filled with joy and peace through believing. So we know that by 1 John and many other passages that if we had more time we could go through this morning, Knowing the Son of God and knowing that we know is possible. Knowing that we have that assurance is possible for everyone. Going to number two. Speaking about the foundation of infallible assurance and its benefactor. Could I have a volunteer come up and read paragraph two for us, please? Thank you, Justin. This certainty is not merely an inconclusive or likely persuasion based on a fallible hope. It is an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. It is also built on the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit about which promises are made. It is further based on the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are children of God. As a fruit of this assurance, our hearts are kept both humble and holy. Thank you, sir. So we know with this assurance, there comes a warning. So how do we not fall into this deception of having a quick and easy assurance, thus being a false assurance? Well, assurance must be qualified. We must understand um, its foundation where it should be rooted, but also who is the giver of it? Is it something that we obtain in and of ourselves? Well, the answer is no. So the 1689 uses infallible to mean not deceiving. Not deceiving. A hope that does not deceive, in other words. Thus, a biblical and genuine and infallible assurance thus does not receive, deceive, excuse me, because of its foundation. We must have a sure and steady hope and anchor and foundation, one that does not waver, one that does not ever flow, one that does not turn like the, the weather vane, or change like the thermometer. Thus, a biblical and genuine assurance and infallible assurance must have a foundation or a root that is in Christ. How do we have a, an assurance that does not waver? 
that does not deceive. We do not look inwardly, we look to Christ. Point one there, because we have Christ as a foundation or a root of our assurance, we know this because Christ's single offering of his blood perfects assurance because Christ's single offering of his blood perfects those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified are they who have trusted in Christ's offering, which was once and for all. And I'm pulling those from Hebrews, obviously, if that sounds familiar to you. Allow me to read that for you there. Hebrews 10, and by that we will have we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up through us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. And what full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we know that an undeceiving assurance is only found in Christ. Why in Christ? Because through his single offering, he perfects. Through his single offering, it was once and for all. This is where your confidence should be yet. This is where your assurance should be grounded. Again, I haven't mentioned anything about looking to yourself yet, have I? That's not where it should be. It should be in Christ and Christ alone. Point two. We have assurance because of Christ's single offering and we have assurance because we are justified. Well, where are we pulling that from? Look in the parentheses there. I have Romans 3, 21 through 25. Could somebody read that for us, please? Thank you, Ted. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, <clears throat> although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in G Christ Jesus. Was there more? Um, 25, more? yes, sir whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. Thank you, Ted. So we have an assurance that has a sure and steady foundation that's rooted in Christ's sacrifice, 
It's rooted in because we are justified by his grace through the redemption. Redemption meaning Christ's blood because Christ was the only adequate payment. Thus, we have a righteousness that's foreign through God, through faith in Jesus Christ. So our foundation, again, is in his atonement and what he did on the cross his perfecting of all those who are being sanctified, his sacrificial death that was once and for all. Point two, because we are justified. Point three, nothing really to fill in here, but again, so super important. We aren't justified by works. We know that from Galatians 2.16. And biblical assurance is not rooted in works. Again, you do not look inwardly. As Pastor Joel says, you cannot have more assurance by picking up yourself by your own bootstraps. It's a, it's, it's, it would be an assurance that deceives. R.C. Sproul says, Your obedience is not the bedrock of your assurance. Is obedience support important? Yes, thank you. But it is not the bedrock of your assurance. Given the remains of sin within us, it can profoundly be profoundly difficult to give a clear measure of our own spiritual growth. In fact, I have been known to argue that the better we are, the better we get, the worse we seem to ourselves. Can you attest to that? That the more you grow in grace, the more better you get the worse you seem. Why is that? Why is it the better you get, the more you grow in godliness, the worse you seem? You're more aware of your sin, absolutely. Anybody else? That's good, Ted. Absolutely, Brittany. That's good. Thank you all very much. The more we grow in grace in our capacity to see our sin more deeply, which the devil delights to use to discourage us, it is Christ's obedience that secures for us our eternity. So we know that it's rooted in Christ. I don't need to list those three points again, but I am going to speak about the benefactor because that is important. Assurance is not something that we look inwardly to, the benefactor of assurance is the Holy Spirit. And really there, the, the, what I was looking for, I'm like, how can I say the giver of assurance is the Holy Spirit? How can I say giver, like better, sound smarter, benefactor? I'm like, you know what? I don't use that word very much in a sentence. Let me put that down. The benefactor of assurance is the Holy Spirit. And we know this from 1 John 4, 13, for instance. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Romans 8, 15 through 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 1 Corinthians 2.12 Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Do you think assurance falls within that category? That the Spirit, we're given the Spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Would assurance be one of those things freely given to us by God that we understand more so by the Spirit of God? Absolutely. I'm seeing some heads nod. Absolutely. Galatians 4, 6 through 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. So, based upon those four pieces of Scripture, we know that assurance comes from the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Assurance is given by the benefactor, and assurance comes from the testimony of the Holy Spirit, directly testifying to our hearts that we are children of God. I have a quote there by Don Kistler. The primary ground of assurance is rooted in the promises of God, but those promises must become increasingly real to the believer through the subjective evidence of grace and the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. In other words, genuine assurance cannot come by any other means. Just like in and of ourselves, we cannot find Christ, we are not looking for Christ in and of ourselves, we must be drawn to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, making us aware of our sin, making us aware of our need of a Savior, making us aware that there is no other way to the Father except through Christ, such is the same with the Holy Spirit. It cannot come genuinely by any other means, and if we are left to our own, this is your next blank, unaided discernment, so without aid of the Holy Spirit, due to our remaining sin, Christians may never discover any good graces that would come in knowing that they are secure in Christ. So it's rooted in Christ it must be given by the Spirit. And if it were left to us, we wouldn't know that we are secure at all. Carrie Hardy says the Holy Spirit is the one who gives assurance, not the evangelist or any other person. We, speaking about the people of God, we help each other understand the basis of assurance but we leave the actual assuring to the Spirit. So, me this morning having the privilege of going through the 1689 of assurance 
this is where we come in. We help people understand the basis of assurance, but it is up to the Spirit. All right, we are moving on to number three. Paragraph three, could I have a volunteer read that for us, please? Mike is right there in the middle. Thank you again, Jason. Jason's like that one student in my class that raises his hand all the time to appreciate that. All right, this infallible assurance is not an essential part of faith that is always fully experienced alongside faith. But a true believers may wait a long time and struggle many difficulties before obtaining it. Yet with enabling of the Spirit to know the things freely given to them by God, they may attain this assurance using ordinary means, appropriately without any extraordinary revelation. Therefore, it is the duty of all to be diligent as possible to make their calling and election sure. In this way, their hearts may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. The effects are the natural fruits of assurance. Thus, it does not at all encourage believers to be negligent. Amen. Thank you. So we learned about what assurance is. We learned about the warnings that come from having a quick and easy, a false and fallible assurance. We must have an infallible insurance. We must have an assurance that's rooted in Christ. We must understand that assurance is given by the Spirit, not by any other means, but it is through the Spirit. Now we're talking about how do we attain it, the attainability of genuine infallible insurance. Before we get into that, Point A, we must know that assurance is not received to the same degree by every true believer. There is not a universal amount of assurance that's given to each one of us whenever we come to know Christ. Wesley's assurance in Christ may be more than my assurance currently is. Who knows? Richie, you may have an assurance that's less than Rachel's, right? It is, it is not the same. Um, and whenever I spoke about, um, I believe it was adoption, that was the last Sunday school I taught, I uh, spoke a little bit of, of my own struggles with my own uh, assurance of faith. Um, and what was my reason for doing so? Why did I struggle so much? Well, it's because I was looking to myself. I wasn't looking to Christ. I was looking to myself. So, of course, I was like the weather vane I, in the thermometer. I was all over the place. Assurance is not received to the same degree by everyone. Some may attain assurance immediately after their conversion. And I have for us Acts 30, 30 through 34. Could have a volunteer read that. Jackson, how about you, son? Come on up. I can pick on my own boy instead of Mike's boy. <laughs> Acts Acts 16, 30 through 34. And son, come up here and use this microphone for us.
So this is the passage about the, the jailer's conversion. Thirty-two, thirty-four. Yes, sir. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of him to him. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And when he took, when he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with them, entire household, that he had believed in God. Thank you, son. So he rejoiced right after his conversion. There was an immediate assurance that he knew the Lord. That's possible for some people. According to the 1689, some may wait long and, and conflict with many difficulties before they are partakers of it. And I know that that was me. Did anybody else ever have an assurance that wavered like that in the past? Denise, Ronnie? So the Westminster Confession of Faith and the 1689 with regard to this chapter, they're very similar. And there's one pastor and contributor of the Westminster Confession of Faith um, Burgess, I believe his name was, that offered five reasons as to why the Lord may withhold assurance from his children. And we're thinking to ourselves, why in the world would God withhold assurance from his children? Well, these are pre I want us to think about these things, and they're not down there, but I'll leave you space to write them. His first reason, so that we might understand the bitterness of sin. God withholds his assurance so that his children will understand better the bitterness of sin. Joel has mentioned, uh, I forget who quoted it, but I remember him speaking about it. We won't know how sweet Christ is till we know how bitter sin is. So God withholds his assurance so that we'll know how bitter sin is. Secondly, that God might keep us humble. Thirdly, that we might value assurance even more whenever we have it in a larger measure. So that we'll value assurance more whenever we have it in a larger measure. Denise and Ronnie, do you value assurance more now that you have it in a larger measure? Amen. Fourth, that we might pursue obedience even more and give God glory for that obedience. So there is humility and there is obedience in giving God the glory for that obedience, unlike the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Fifth reason. 
God is the God of all comfort who comforts us so that what? We comfort others. Fifth, so that we become experienced Christians who know how to comfort others in distress over their lack of assurance. I believe these are five good reasons that this pastor in the 1600s had come up with. Assurance increases, this is the next point, as believers grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord. 2 Peter 3.18 Assurance is attained, therefore, as indicated by the Spirit of God, through means of grace. It's rooted in Christ, it's given by the Spirit, it's given by the Spirit, and it's attained through us in obedience and also through means of grace. Pastor Phil used that last week during communion. I used it the week before, talking about how the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. And I combined two quotes. Uh, Pastor Phil quoted uh, Rich Barcelos, who's the pastor of Grace Reformed in California. And I also added another quote, combined the two, from uh, one from Donald Whitney, who uh, wrote The Spiritual Disciplines. He's a professor at Southern, if I'm not mistaken still. Means of grace are the delivery systems through God-ordained practices to grow us in godliness. God has instituted these means of grace to bring grace. That is, spiritual power, spiritual change, spiritual help, spiritual fortitude, spiritual blessing to needy souls on earth. So there I give six means of grace. Prayer. Study of the Word, corporate worship, sitting under the Word being preached, communion, and fellowship. So prayer, that's corporately, that's also privately. Study of the Word privately, corporate worship, obviously corporately. Sitting in the Word being preached whenever Joel or Andrew preach. Molly mentioned earlier when I was talking to her how she mentioned to a lot of online sermons. I do the same thing. YouTube is wonderful. A lot of, you would never consider YouTube to be a means of grace, but it definitely can be. Communion. Christian fellowship. And we do that one way through our care groups, do we not? That's one of the reasons I look forward to those things so much. Last paragraph, the variability of genuine assurance. For the sake of time, guys, I'm just going to, work through these. Uh, we don't have time to read the paragraph. I'm long-winded whenever I speak, generally, and also long-winded whenever I prepare notes and handouts. So according to the 1689, this is paragraph four, assurance can be variable. In other words, it's not consistent 
or it's liable to change. Christians who have enjoyed seasons of assured confidence of their right standing before God can and do have their faith, assurance of faith, be shaken. At such times, they feel the ebbing and the flowing of their assurance. And the loss of assurance can be a very disconcerting thing. I have some questions there. Perhaps you have struggled with this loss. Perhaps at one point, you were in a season whenever your assurance of faith was strong. Something came along, and you had a loss of that assurance. You might have the question, how can you avoid the problem of losing assurance again? And I think it's helpful to ask that question, but also ask, why do people lack it? So the fourth paragraph of the 1689 mentions some reasons, and I've listed some there. I I believe there's no further blanks. Just follow along with me here. Their conscience is wounded. There is a lack of assurance that comes from a general negligence. A negligence of what, do you think? Being in the Word. What else? Thank you, Mike. Gathering with the saints, corporate worship. Well done. Anything else? Yeah. Attaboy, Ronnie. There's an unexpected temptation. There's an overwhelming trial. I'll tell you what, whenever I lost my parents um, back to back within about a year, That was probably the biggest overwhelming trial. Do you think at times of those, do you think we're very susceptible to having that loss of our assurance of faith whenever we have those overwhelming trials? More specifically, I give us some reasons. The believer cannot remember or point to a specific time when they received Christ. So some doubt if they were ever really saved. There is a specific time whenever salvation of, uh, occurs. It's whenever regeneration takes place. The issue is for people is are they now trusting in the person and work of Christ? Another reason why people may lack assurance The believer questions the procedure they went through whenever they accepted Christ. Quoting from MacArthur a little bit ago, there mentions a reciting of a prayer, some kind of public confession of faith whenever you raise your hand. But that also hurts if you receive Christ privately and you wonder if perhaps the public confession was better or praying a different prayer was better. The believer struggles with certain sins. They wonder if a true believer would have these kinds of problems. The real problem is ignorance of our rebellion and how real spiritual warfare is, but God's means of deliverance and the need to grow and mature in Christ. Reason number four, the believer has a doctrinal misunderstanding in a consequent lack of faith in the finished work of Christ. We spoke about that a little bit ago. 
They look inwardly instead of to Christ. This means a failure to understand the word and its teaching regarding mankind or sin, the inability to work or maintain their salvation, God's holiness, and the sufficiency in what Christ did on the cross. Finally, the believer lacks assurance because they have erroneously been taught that they should look to themselves as proof. How do I know that I'm saved? Well, how well am I being obedient to Christ now? Ooh, I'm not. I'm living a very sinful season of life where there's very little repentance. I'm not in the Word very much. My prayer life stinks, thus I must really not know the Lord. Do we see the conundrum there, the problem? Look to Christ. Look to Christ alone. Don't neglect the means of grace that the Lord has given us. And whatever, whatever obedience you happen to have in your life, give God, give God the glory for. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time this morning. Oh, Lord, as someone who has struggled with assurance, do I really know you? Lord, I know that there are people in our midst this morning, my fellow brothers and sisters of Christ, who struggle with the same. Lord, I pray that for anyone who is going through that season of life, that they would look to you. Lord, that they would cry out for mercy. Lord, that you would increase their faith. That they wouldn't neglect the means of grace that you have instituted, that you have made, aware, made, us, made possible, that you have given us gifts. These amazing delivery systems of your grace. May we not neglect the word. May we not neglect prayer. May we not neglect fellowship. May we not neglect corporate worship where we get to sit under the word being preached. Lord, increase our assurance this morning, looking to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We love you. We thank you so much for Jesus. And it's his holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.